Welcome to the Free to Be More podcast by the Enoch Pratt Free Library. I'm your host, Megan McCorkle. This podcast series features conversations with leaders and innovators having a positive impact in our city. Let's get started. Your journey starts here. His church has been a change maker in Baltimore City, tackling social inequities since the 1800s. Now, Union Baptist Church Reverend Alvin Hathaway looks at his past in the city as he works towards making a better future. Reverend Al Hathaway, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Thank you, Megan. I'm happy to be here. So for people who are not familiar with you and your background, just give me a little synopsis, uh, sort of a little bio of your history and what you're doing right now with Union Baptist Church. Uh, Well, you you know, it's interesting. I was born uh, in the same block of the church in which I serve. So I was born in the 1200 block of Drew Hill Avenue in Upton. I guess that was the heyday back in the 50s when I was born. It was a very active, uh, very engaged community. Uh, uh, You had a whole diverse kind of people from backgrounds. And my church has always been at the center of the community. And so I grew up in Union Baptist Church, though I've lived in other places. I I, uh, went to uh, St. Mary's Seminary here. Uh, I got my master's there. I went to United Theological Seminary in Dayton, Ohio. Did graduate studies at, uh, at at Oxford as well as Harvard. And I returned back to my community in 2004 to become the on the ministry team of Union Baptist Church. So I've been at Union Baptist Church there back in my neighborhood since 2004. So for 16 years, I've been working in my own community. Wow. I've heard you talk about your childhood and growing up in Baltimore, and you grew up in the 50s and 60s, which was just this time that was really rife with activism and fighting against structural racism. And what was it like experiencing that at such a young age? It it was amazing. If you had to think about it, uh, Union Baptist Church was at the center of the activism during that day. Uh, My predecessor, uh, Reverend Dr. Vernon Dobson uh, was a activist uh, preacher. Uh, he was in the mode of uh, Martin Luther King. He organized a lot of protests. So I, I cut my teeth uh, there being a warm body. My mm-hmm. first warm body experience was carrying a picket sign when we were walking around gold seekers and uh, picketing gold seekers for his real estate practices. So out of that evolved the Gold Seeker Foundation. Mm-hmm. And then I was uh, another warm body when they um, protested Gwinnell Park. Uh, mm-hmm. I was able, after it was uh, desegregated in 1963, as a young child, I was able to go into the park, ride on the merry-go-round, enjoy the activities there. And I'm proud to say that I was able to take my children to the uh, National Mall in Washington, D.C. And the merry-go-round that I rode as a child there in uh, 1963 is on uh, the National Mall as a testimony and monument to the activism of persons in Baltimore City, the pastors, the clergy uh, there, the Gwen Oak uh, Park uh, merry-go-round is in the National Mall in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. That's pretty amazing to be able to kind of come full circle with that, right? It is, it is. In fact, uh, and then kind of out of that activism, I was involved as an organizer of churches. So I was on the organizing staff of Baltimore's United and Leadership Development uh, that people now know as Build. So in the early days, I was a part of uh, helping put that together. And I can say that now, some almost 40 years later, it's still an active and powerful organization serving people in Baltimore City. I then went to Washington, D.C. and put together a similar organization there in in Southeast Washington that has done amazing things. I returned back to Baltimore 
and then began working, putting together what people now know as the Coppin Heights CDC. Uh, mm-hmm. So that whole area of Coppin that's now known as Coppin Heights, I was mm-hmm. embedded and engaged in that community. And then we were able to launch the Coppin Heights CDC that's doing amazing things now. It's just uh, renovated the uh, old orphanage uh, there for a medical clinic in the uh, West Baltimore. It's doing a, a major project in the old mill site there on North Avenue. Uh, mm-hmm. So I've been, been a part of uh, some of the uh, epic happenings that's occurred in Baltimore City. Do you think that because you had experienced activism at such a young age, you were a child during the March on Washington, do you think that like sparked a passion in you from an early age? It, it, did. it did. What it did was it created the sense that activism is normal. Mm-hmm. Many times people think of it as act normal or they think of it as reactionary. It was just built in my DNA because of the religious uh, community in which I was a part of. So to be engaged, to be involved, uh, when we ran Perrin Mitchell, who was the first congressman for the 7th District after mm-hmm. the market, uh, there I was in Frankentown Road there where they counted the ballots. I was sitting there watching to make certain that uh, the ballots were taped correctly and were sent down to the central office for electing them. I've always been there. It's just been a part of my DNA. I think that's important because the older members of our community recognize that you needed to involve the younger people in the community in their own freedom struggle. And I think that's important for us to understand even in this day. Mm-hmm. And even when you were growing up, uh, you really firsthand experienced the segregation in Baltimore uh, when it came to your school, when it came into the neighborhoods that your family moved into. Talk a little bit about that to me and how it's impacted you now. Yeah, that's it's interesting to think. So I lived in, the, in Jewel Avenue up mm-hmm. until 1957. Uh, 1957, my family moved and integrated the 2500 block of Holland Street, which is in uh, West Baltimore, right there at Baltimore, Franklintown Road. We were the first African-American family to move into that block. Uh, I'll never forget, I had a friend, he was a, uh, a Caucasian young man, his name was Timmy. And mm-hmm. Timmy and I would play out in the front. And then I looked up and one day Timmy came and told me, said, hey, we're gonna move. And I said, wow, where are you going? You know, we're having so much fun. And then I realized as Timmy moved out, there were more African-American families moving into that block. But then I went to what was, it's still now, I think this might be closed, but it was then, the Betsy Ross, check this name, the mm-hmm. Betsy Ross Elementary School <laughs> that was south of Frederick Avenue. We would walk to that school, and I had a number of us now that moved into that neighborhood, and we had to move, go there as a group because there was still tension between the white young kids and the African-American kids. So we would go as a group to school, there, sit in class, and in record speed, the Baltimore City school system built the school just for African-American students in about 1958 or mm-hmm. 1959 for us to attend. So we had a brand new school they built in record time, basically to segregate us from going to Betsy Ross School. I didn't think of it at that time. I didn't think of that, that the system, that structural racism was built into how you would educate students because we looked at it, hey, we got a new school. But in our school, there was no diversity. It was just African-American students. But they were excellent students. We had excellent teachers. In fact, my fifth grade teacher that there that I met and was my instructor, my home teacher instructor there, is still my friend to this day. Oh, I love that. Do you feel like when we look at the way Baltimore City schools are today, that that segregation still exists in an informal way? That's the sad part about our public school system is that, just keep in mind now, I did go to that uh, segregated elementary school, but when mm-hmm. I went to junior high school, I was about a cohort 
that was integrating Gwynn's Falls Park Junior High School. My mm. classmate and my dear friend was Congressman Elijah Cummins. We went there in the accelerated class there, accelerated class 701. We were friends there, 701, 7, uh, 801, and 901. And then we went to Baltimore City College, being a part of that wave of African-American students that were integrating Baltimore City College. And that started in 1963. We come there in 1966. So my whole journey has been a minority entering into majority schools in Baltimore City. That's mm -hmm. the opposite now. Sure. Now you have the African-American community being the majority. And basically all of our schools are run and, 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 and populated by African-American students. And they don't get any diversity. They don't mm -hmm. get the opportunity to develop relationships across uh, gender and race and religion. And I think that is uh, one of the uh, weaknesses of our current uh, educational system. How important is it, do you feel like, for kids in those schools today to understand that a lot of the way the city is made up today is because of the policies that happened back in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s? Yeah, when you, when you think about it, uh, built into the planning process was uh, structural racism. Uh, case in point, if you think about the uh, I-40, the highway to nowhere, that mm -hmm. basically destroyed West Baltimore. It separated one side of the community from the other. But people don't realize that it took out three churches and it took out about four or five schools. And then when you start to think that we have these schools that are zoned where, yes, you have students have to, you live in a certain area, you have to go to that school. Well, if all of the people who are the same racial group live in the same area, then by definition, that school is going to be a segregated school. And so I think built into what I see now, and I must say that one of the things that was significant out of the 60 movement when I was growing up was a move for inclusion and a move for homogeneity among races. Then when I begin to look at the 70s, I start to see us reverting back to segregated patterns. In fact, Dr. Lawrence Brown uh, outlines it well, where he talks about the black butterfly and the white elm. Yep. Uh, that, that is true that has occurred now. That was not the norm when I was growing up. Does it feel like, uh, you know, the black butterfly, the white owl, we talk about it so much, but does it feel like there's any movement to do away with that? It just feels like it's here to stay. And I, I don't know what the first steps are to change that. I, I can give you an example of, of how you should begin to look at changing that. Mm -hmm. uh, let's take, for example, I, my home base is West Baltimore. I, know that well. Right now, we have a development opportunity uh, where it looks at the state center, state center complex. Mm -hmm. We have another development opportunity when we think of McCullough Homes, the public housing uh, low rises that are there. When you look at that combined land mass, you're talking about 55 acres of inner city property in Baltimore City. Just imagine if we took on the political community, the business community, the community itself, really reimagine that space we could have a very diverse, a very strong community and neighborhood built there. I think it's gonna mean that the next administration at the uh, local level, at the state level, and the federal level has to reimagine uh, cities like Baltimore and particularly neighborhoods like that in West Baltimore. The Free to Be More podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library, now offering computer appointments at select Pratt locations. Access the internet for free more details at prattlibrary.org.
We've talked a little bit about your history, but I want to talk about the history of your church, Union Baptist. Union Baptist has really been a key player at tackling racial and social inequities in Baltimore City since the 1800s. Talk to me a little bit about that. You know, it's amazing, uh, you know, growing up in Union Baptist Church, I'm the 10th pastor to serve in 168 years. Wow. So so there has been a consistency of uh, of tenure of, uh, of pastoral and ministerial leadership. But mm-hmm. we had an amazing individual who was our fifth pastor. Look at these timelines. He served from 1872 to 1923. Wow. He served for 50 years. And if you think about the timeline of America, you think about the timeline of Baltimore City, think about the timeline of the state of Maryland, here was this trained, educated, uh, seminary-trained young man there in his mid-20s coming to Union Baptist Church. He was able to transform Union Baptist Church from two, 300-person membership to over Mm 3,000. And so at that time, 8% of the African-American community that lived in Baltimore City were members of Union Baptist Church. So he was able to have, uh, his name was Reverend Dr. Harvey Johnson, amazing have some amazing uh, influence and power because of that, which really propelled Union Baptist Church into the forefront of the social justice movement. But mm-hmm. when you look at Union Baptist Church that was begun in 1852, it was located downtown by where we know Mercy Hospital. Uh, that was the area in which African-Americans lived in downtown Baltimore City. We had our church built there at the corner of Lafayette and what we now know as Calvert Street. Mm-hmm. 1865. Now, the church was begun in 1852. 1865, we founded what is now known as Bowie State University. Mm-hmm. And Bowie State University met on our campus. And Bowie State University is the first uh, historic black college and university in the state of Maryland. So there was this sense of education, this sense of activism that was built in. So when Harvey Johnson came there in 1872, he inherited that same kind of DNA and he fought some significant battles. One of the first battles he fought was that he had four members, four members of his church who was traveling on a steamship line from Norfolk to Baltimore, Maryland. They had Mm -hmm. purchased a first class ticket and the captain and the stewards would not allow them to stay in the first class accommodations. And so they wouldn't go down to where they were directed them, where the cattle and down underneath where it was not a hospitable place to be. And they protested. He came and told Dr. Harvey Johnson and Dr. Johnson sued the steamship line that they were traveling on. Mm-hmm. And he won that case. It was the Sioux steamship line case. That was the first case that really struck at Plessy versus Ferguson, which dealt with this idea that African-Americans are not cargo, are not chattel in interstate commerce. That was a significant decision that later was, uh, when when Thurgood Marshall came along, he cited that in his case of Brown versus Board of Education. So here you had activism that that addressed the uh, judicial system. Uh, When he realized that, he went and he brought into being, he he had a gentleman, his name was Edward uh, Warren, and he got him admitted to the uh, bar in uh, Maryland Bar. Uh, when he got him admitted, he paid for it, got him admitted. Uh, what then happened was he broke the, the racial barrier by having the first African-American lawyer admitted to the Maryland bar. And then they just began suing everybody. They started <laughs> suing everybody and suing uh, there. And, uh, and then you start to have the influx of other uh, African-American attorneys that now went to the bar. So we can look at Union Baptist Church as involved in social justice. 
legal justice, and doing transformative work. I will make this one other comment. Uh, I watched and I witnessed the political process firsthand. And so mm-hmm. the uh, campaign for Joe Howard that mm-hmm. broke where the, the governor would appoint judges, they would only appoint uh, judges that were from uh, the white community and uh, then judges that were then appointed had to then go stand for election. So in 1968, they ran Joseph Howard, Judge Howard, and he won, which broke that governor's stronghold on appointing judges. And they were able, uh, then you find the judicial uh, system open up to African-Americans, the women, et cetera. And uh, we find ourselves now with a more diverse judiciary because of that action. But then also they ran Perry Mitchell for Congress. And Perry Mitchell didn't make it in 1968. Ran against a gentleman named Congressman Sam Fidel. But then when he came back and ran him again in 1970, he won. And he won by something like 37 votes. And so that then ushered in this political empowerment process. And I watched that firsthand, participated in that firsthand, and understand the power of a church that was active in being transformative and change-oriented. Mm-hmm. How are you now taking that at when we go to present day to continue being that type of anchor institution in your community? Well, today, uh, one of the couple of things that we realized, and, it, and it's really, I'm just carrying it out. We, we are in the uh, Head Start business. So we've been in the Head Start business now since 1966. So we've been in Head Start business for 54 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have one of the outstanding Head Start programs uh, literally in the country. And so I have 175 children there. Uh, during that 54-year period, we've had over 10,000 students come through our Head Start program. So we wanted to impact education. But then the other thing that we're doing that, uh, that we realized was that we need to make certain that and these are three or four-year-olds that's in our Head Start program. But what we need to make certain was that babies and children were born healthy and with a healthy birth weight. So we created what was called Drew Mondam and Healthy Families. Mm-hmm. And in that program, we work with a series of mothers that are expecting with their fathers around reunification of families, teaching parenting skills, And we've been really blessed that we've been able to have children born with healthy birth weights and we've not had any infant mortalities over the last three years. Need a book, audiobook, hotspot, or more? Sidewalk service is now available at 14 Enoch Pratt Free Library locations. Pick up your materials contact-free. Remote printing is also available on-site. Make an appointment today at prattlibrary.org. Obviously, we're in a very difficult time in our country, uh, in the world, given coronavirus. How has that impacted the services that you're able to offer with your church? Yeah, it has caused us uh, to really pivot. If you think about it right now, like most churches and most institutions, uh, all of our services now are virtual. So Mm -hmm. on Sundays, we have virtual service. uh, uh, Our information is distributed virtually. But we realized that we needed to pivot because one of the things that's impacting people in underserved communities uh, like Upton is that there you would have about 40% of the people don't have internet in their homes. Uh, so we partnered with Comcast, we partnered with Project Waves, we partnered with the Sankofa Project, and we have a cyber center. And in that cyber center, we are building the capacity to provide free internet access to 250 families in that Upton community. And we're going to provide internet access to the 600 families that are residents of McCullough Homes. And then we uh, 
Comcast is going to give us 5G, uh, which is a real fast download speed so that we can help students that want to uh, be proficient in their virtual studies. They'll be able to come on our campus and have fast download speeds and, and Internet access. So that's the new wave. Uh, we've got to bridge the digital divide and Union Baptist Church is making that pivot uh, to make certain we build that bridge so that students and people in neighborhoods can cross. Sure. How worried are you at this point about some of the students that maybe since last March haven't had internet in their homes and all of school is now online? I mean, they are getting left out. That's why uh, we're going to, we've installed a towel on our, on our building. Okay. Uh, we will soon be able to beam internet service for free into the homes in that community because you recognize that that's a severe impediment. But before we, we worked against segregation to ensure that students had access to go to schools. Now we got to make certain that students have access to the internet so that they don't fall behind on their studies. How else has COVID really further exposed the racial inequities in Baltimore, specifically when it comes to health and health care? Yeah, just think about it now. Uh, mm -hmm. Two things. Food is essential to good health. Mm -hmm. And so the access to vegetables, uh, fresh vegetables, fresh fruits is important. So every Monday we are distributing food in the community. There are many places in Baltimore City that are doing the same thing because being in a food desert means that if you aren't eating healthy, then your body is going to be weakened. If your body is weakened, you're going to be more susceptible to catching COVID, uh, this COVID uh, disease. And so we've got to make certain that our people are healthy and that they're strong. Uh, the other thing that is exposed is that primary care physicians, you don't have access to primary care because they're going to telemedicine. So if you don't have internet access, mm -hmm. if you don't have the capacity for telemedicine, you're mm -hmm. kind of locked out of the medical delivery service process. So we're going to bring in a mobile van to make certain that persons have their flu shots. Uh, we're going to keep working with uh, University of Berlin uh, Medical Center to ensure that medical services are directly targeted to people in that community. Uh, we're going to work with our total health care facility, which is a federally qualified clinic, to make certain that those services are available because people are being locked out because of this COVID, because of not having internet access, and because mm -hmm. they're moving to telemedicine. I feel like um, churches like yours and library systems like ours in the city of Baltimore kind of do the same thing. No matter what the problem, whether it's sort of in your field or not in your field, we're looking for ways to solve it. Well, well that's one of the strengths. I got I to always give it to the Enoch Pratt library system. You are seen as safe space. And that's what we have to be. We have to be safe space. Where can you go so that your mind can be transported into other places if you physically can't be there? That's what the library does. It allows for people to come to read a book, to have internet access, to be stimulated by a lecture or a discussion, and then transform themselves to realize that the world is greater than the neighborhood that they're in. That's what we try to do there at Union Baptist Church as well. One of the other things that we saw so much during this summer is the explosion of police shootings of unarmed black men across the country and not, not necessarily the explosion of it, more the fact that there were so much video of it that it was caught on camera. There were marches in cities across the country. That's something that Baltimore really went through back in 2014, 2015 with Freddie Gray. Do you feel like Baltimore has changed since Freddie Gray or what are some of the lessons that we've learned that maybe 
can be helpful in the rest of the country or how much further do we still have to go? Well, I think I think one of the lessons that came out of the uh, 2015 Freddie Gray disturbance was that we happen to have a, uh, a federal administration in place, the Obama administration. We had a Justice Department that recognized that we could petition them and they then cited our police department for patterns and practice in terms of discrimination. And then uh, the police department and the city of Baltimore had to undergo and go enter into a dissent decree. That was very important and very significant because that is the roadmap for rebuilding our police department and rebuilding relationships with the community and the police. I'll give you an example. One of the things we did at our church is that we took a portion of our campus and we created and developed a police lounge. So the police from Central District, they come right on our campus, right there on Dolphin Street. That's where they eat their lunch. That's where they use uh, the restroom facilities. That's where they write their reports. And they are accessible to people in the community. People can talk to them as they come and they can talk to people. You've got to create places in the community where there can be wholesome and positive engagement and not uh, militarization. Police officers have to eat, you have to eat. Police officers need to drink water, you drink water. We've got to realize that we are all a part of the same community, and there we've been able to do that. And that's what this consent decree is intentionally seeking to do. Mm-hmm. The challenge is that we've got so many practices within the Baltimore system that's just baked in, that that's how we used to do it. Uh, yeah. We have so many uh, police officers that, unfortunately, uh, use that as a way to increase their income by uh, overtime that may not have been uh, specifically warranted, so the budgets got out of whack. But they're now tackling that. They're making certain that the police officers are responsible and accountable, and they also are trying to beef up their hiring of persons who live in Baltimore City. I think our police department is headed in the right way. We've got to give them the tools, but they also have to realize that they have to be members of our community. When you saw some of the marches this summer in different cities and the different types of people, all ages, races out there marching, did it give you hope or do you feel like that's just a one-time thing and now the work needs to happen? No, no, it gave me hope. The reason why why it gave me hope Mm -hmm. is that in the civil rights movement, in the movement for social justice, that becomes the melting pot where persons from different experiences come together for a single cause. Out of that, you develop relationships. Out of that, you develop, you break down barriers. Out of that, you develop what I would say to you is community, where everyone realizes that we are working together for the common good. That happened in the civil rights movement in the 60s. And I see it happening again in this movement that's happening now. One of the um, key pieces of what's happening now will be leadership. We are in a period of you know, major elections coming up at federal and local level. So I want to talk, I guess, first about the local level. What do you feel is needed in new leadership in the city of Baltimore? Well, I think uh, uh, if you may remember, I was a part of an effort uh, during the election called Act Now Baltimore, where we emphasize accountability, credibility, transparency. I kept singing that song over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. And we found that the uh, persons who ran for elected officer picked up the songbook and they started talking about accountability and credibility and transparency. That's the key as we move into the future. We have the possibility uh, in Baltimore City to do something very unique. We could possibly have a person in the 
30s as the mayor of Baltimore City, mm-hmm. a president of the city council in their 40s, mm-hmm. and then a controller in their 50s. Mm-hmm. So we can have three generations represented by the leadership of our city. I think that is a positive occurrences. And I think that if that in fact happens, I think we've got an opportunity to look at our city, to look at how we do business, to look at how this this seems to be a, a pay to play movement mm-hmm. to get that out of the business of government. And I think the other thing that I'm excited about is the elevation of the office of the inspector general. Uh, mm-hmm. Isabel Cummings is a proactive watchdog. <laughs> yes, she is. <laughs> and, and I think to give her more uh, clout and more ability and more resources can only help us as a city. And I think when people understand what the lines are, you know, you can't color outside the lines. You have to stay inside the lines. I believe our city will move in a very positive direction. Do you feel like In the past few years, past few administrations, there's been a level of corruption that has breeded some kind of distrust with people. And one of the top priorities would really be changing that around so that people can trust in the government that's in place. Yeah, I did a survey. And and, and when you talk about do you trust your elected officials, they were more than 70, 75 percent of people said no. Wow. And I think that that is the one area that the elected officials have to realize that their credibility, trust in their actions, being open and transparent in what they do is the demand that the community has. But not only that, we have a very proactive criminal justice system that seems to don't have a tolerance for white crime, uh, for that kind of backdoor dealing. And so you got an activist in terms of our attorney general, uh, Robert Herr, who seems to be, you know, knocking sparks all over the place. And then I think you have this activism coming from Isabella Cummins, as I mentioned. And I think the the people have to realize that people are watching what you're doing. So Mm -hmm. do the right thing, like Spike Lee would say, do the right thing. And I think if we do the right thing, I think our city will move in the right direction. We're also looking at a major national election just south of us in the White House. What kind of impact are you hoping that could have? And what have you seen in the past four years within this country that you would like to see changed? Well, if you think about, people need to realize that Baltimore City, because of our demographics, Mm -hmm. we have always been a model city, a test city. Programs are always tested in Baltimore because Mm -hmm. we have the demographics and Washington, D.C. has always been a good partner. Uh, You can go back all the way to President Carter and Mm -hmm. go all the way up. Washington, D.C. and federal government has always been a good partner of Baltimore City. Now Mm -hmm. to think that in the past four years, you've had an occupant of the White House that has been denigrating the city, has been talking negatively about the city, has not put resources in the city. I am hopeful that we'll have a different occupant in the White House that will Mm -hmm. resurrect that relationship again. Because the beauty of Baltimore is that you can test government policies and practices here and then transport them around the country. We can determine if they work. We've got the sophistication of evaluation uh, institutions like a Morgan State University and a Johns Hopkins and the University of Maryland that we can do the research around best practices. Uh, We've got the people who are cohesive enough to understand that they can do the things that need to be done to improve their communities. We are the perfect test city and we've always been that. I think we should be that once again. 
And we just need sort of that national support and the resources behind it. Yeah, we've got to have, give, I'll give an example. I mean, I'll give you a specific example. Uh, we had in Congress, in the U.S. Senate, we had Senator uh, Bob Mikulski. Many people know that name. Bob <laughs> Mikulski created the Hope Six Project. The Hope Six Project was the demolition of the public high-rise buildings to create neighborhoods of choice. Mm-hmm. So here you had all of the high-rise buildings in Baltimore City were demolished and neighborhoods and communities were built largely because of the relationship of Senator Baltimore McCoskin and her understanding of the needs of Baltimore City as mm-hmm. reflected in the needs of cities all across America. Mm-hmm. I think we yeah. have competent leadership going to Congress. Uh, when you think in terms of uh, Senator Ben Cardin, Senator Van Hollen, Senator Ruxenberg, Senator Sarbanes, and uh, now the elevation of Congressman Kwaisi and Fume, we can mm-hmm. do that again. And that's going to be very important that we get federal resources to support and undergird the diminishing resources that we have in Baltimore City. But we still do creative community and build community wealth. We build community homes and we build community businesses right here. My last question for you, I'm going to rely a little bit on your um, probably Sunday morning skills, is this is a tough time for a lot of people. It's a time where we're isolated and we're not together with other people. A lot of people are losing their jobs and facing really financial hardship. What are some of the words of hope for the future that you can give people here in Baltimore City that are, I think we're all struggling? Yeah, no, we are, it is a struggle. And I would say to you that I was real fortunate to be a part of a wall-sized mural honoring Congressman Elijah Cummings. And that mural is in the 1200 block of Drill Avenue, right next to where our church is located. In that mural, there are these words, never let anyone define you. And that came about because as Congressman Cummings, uh, then an eighth grade student, was interacting with his counselor, he said to his counselor, I wanted to become a lawyer. And the counselor said to him, you can't be a lawyer. Maybe you should consider being a teacher. He went back to his mother and told his mother what had occurred. He felt hurt. And his mother said those words to him. Never let anyone define you. Mm -hmm. Uh, What Congressman Cummings meant is out of a biblical understanding. And the biblical understanding is that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And I translate that into this saying, that you are not defined by your context. You are defined by your content. Mm -hmm. And I believe that everybody has value. Everybody has worth. And we've got to realize, as people will say, that we are in this together. And if we recognize in Baltimore City that we are in this together, if we pull together as a community, we can overcome this terrible time. There's people who are feeling isolated. There's people who do not have the resources to survive. Uh, there are persons who are wondering what tomorrow may bring. And I want them to know that we are the hands and we are the hearts and we are the minds of the divine that people see. And we are the ones that can turn this around. And I'm seeing it being done all over our city. And I think that we as institutional leaders have a responsibility to urge and help people along and provide the supports for them to do what they can do, which is help one another. Reverend Alvin Hathaway, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you now. It's my pleasure. Get the latest bestsellers for free at the Pratt. Check out the new prattlibrary.org to find out what's new at the library. Available via ebook or audiobook online, or pick up a copy at a Pratt Sidewalk Service location. See the hottest titles at prattlibrary.org.
I'm Megan McCorkle, and you've been listening to the Free to Be More podcast by the Enoch Pratt Free Library. You can follow the Pratt on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next month for another Free to Be More conversation. Thanks for listening.